Uh, we continue our study in Judges this morning by looking at chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, and we're going to be going all the way up through chapter 12, verse 7, Lord willing. And just by way of review, so we can kind of get caught back up here, last week Will walked us through first the downfall of Abimelech that we saw in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, the first five verses there tell us very briefly about two of Israel's judges, Tola and Jair, who ruled collectively for 45 years. And then the remainder of our time was spent by looking once again at Israel's rebellion against the Lord by turning once again to serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth of the peoples around them and, and again forsaking the Lord. And so the Lord responds by giving them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, and they oppressed Israel for 18 years. And once again, we see the people cry out to the Lord to save them out of their distress. And the Lord's initial response, you may remember, is this, go cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you. But then the Lord becomes impatient over the misery of Israel, and out of his loving kindness, he has mercy on them once again. Okay, So that's a recap from, from last week. And so that brings us up to verse 17 in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, verse 17 through chapter 11, verse 11, we have the agent of this next cycle of salvation. So let's go ahead and read that together. Chapter 10. Verse, starting at verse 17, reading through chapter 11, verse 11. If I can have somebody read that for us, that would be great. Thanks, Will. So, 
those last two verses in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, reveal for us the need that Israel has again for a deliverer to arise. And we see here the Ammonites take their possession by camping in Gilead, and Israel takes its possession by encamping at Mizpah. And then we see the leaders of Gilead ask another, I'm sorry, ask one another, who is the man that is going to rise up for us and lead us out against the Ammonites? And those words there are really similar to what we see right at the beginning of the book of Judges, but you're going to notice here there's something, there's a glaring difference that's missing between what we see here at the end, at the end of chapter 10 and what we saw right at the beginning of this book. So I want you to take a look at this. Judges 1.1 says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Okay, and then chapter 10, verse 18, again, very similar language, but notice the difference. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So what's the difference here? Okay. Notice at the beginning of the book, they're inquiring of the Lord, and now as we continue to see this cycle of degeneration happening, they're saying to one another. Okay, So they're turning from divine counsel to seeking human counsel on who it is that's going to go to war for us. Now, that's a point that we don't want to overlook because, again, what we're seeing in the book of Judges is this just gradual digression okay, within, within Israel. So that's a, a very important component that's missing out here. And even though later on in this story, in chapter 11, verse 29, we do see the spirit of the Lord coming upon Jephthah, we, we want to make sure that we don't overlook the fact that Israel fails to consult the Lord as they prepare to go out against their enemy. And what that helps us to see again is they seem to have quickly forgotten how disastrous it, it is to seek a man who is driven by personal ambition rather than a man who seeks to serve and lead the people. And you may remember we saw how disastrous that was in the case of Abimelech, when there was a man seeking his own, own desire, and that did not turn out too well. So that's, that's how we have chapter 10 concluding. And then that kind of builds into chapter 11 and verses 1 through 3, we really have the pertinent information that we need about Jephthah here. And what we see is that Jephthah was a skilled warrior, okay? But he was the son of a prostitute. So his military might earlier on in his life was overshadowed by who his mother was. And so this day comes when the legitimate sons of Gilead recognize that the more sons there are in the house the more the inheritance will need to be divided. And so they kick the illegitimate son, Jephthah, out of the family. And he flees to the land of Tob, where he's surrounded essentially by a band of thugs. And then Israel essentially cries out in a time of need and pleads with Jephthah to return to deliver them from the hand of their enemies. And then Jephthah agrees upon the condition that he becomes the head or leader of Israel if he conquers the enemy. Okay, so in, in that section, I think one of the things that should stand out to us is that at the beginning, at, at the beginning here, is how Jephthah 
foreshadows how Israel, and in essence, all of humanity, is going to respond to the true deliverer, the true Savior, our, our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice here the similarities between Jephthah and Jesus. Israel goes back to the one they casted out to seek deliverance by him from the enemy. Okay? This is really the gospel in shadow right here of what is going to happen on a grander scale when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up. We have here in Jephthah and in Jesus, we have the one who is despised and rejected to whom they now come in order to be delivered and saved from their enemy. Now, obviously, there are dissimilarities here as well. Jephthah was self-serving. He wanted to know, okay, if I do get appointed for this, you know, here's my reward. You'll make me head over Israel. And he was, he was all about what he could gain from agreeing to this proposition by the people. Jesus, on the other hand, is all about serving others and laying down his life so that his people could be saved. So we see in Jephthah God choosing what man had rejected. And I just want to bring that out for you because it's beautiful as you walk through Scripture to see these shadows and types in the Old Testament that will soon give way to the reality in the New Testament, everything culminating in the person and work of Jesus. Okay, so that's what we have in that first section is the agent of salvation, Jephthah. Okay, now let's move on to this next part here in the history of Israel. Yes, Dave. Yeah, yep. Going back to this Judges 1-1. Yes. And the comments that you made, maybe I misunderstood, but there is a said one to another in the end of 10. And what's missing yeah. I think you were saying both of those things were issues relative to what's missing at 10. But what's missing at 10 is an inquiry of the Lord. Correct. And, and this might be pushing things, but there's a vertical issue going on. Yes. And there's a horizontal issue. We're expected to be wise in, in our choices. Yes. And, and, and we're expected to have wisdom. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's also the sign of the cross, right? And this is probably pushing the metaphor too far. But to me, that's the cross. Right. And I look right. at Jephthah as an antichrist. Correct. He's an antichrist. Right. It's just the opposite. It's the right. negative of what the cross is all about. Yeah. And I would say that Jephthah is a type of Christ, which means he's both like and unlike. And so, you can see it. His yeah. brother's a prostitute. She was a virgin. Right. His brothers, his brothers um, rejected him. Well, at first they did, but then... His disciple, that he, he gathered worthless fellows around him. Right. Well, he gathered his disciples around him. It's, right. It's a whole anti-Christ, Christ issue. Right, right, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep, good point. So let's, let's take a look here at this second point here, the history of salvation. And that's what we see in verses 12 through 28 here in chapter 11. Okay, so let's go ahead and, and read that. It's beginning in verse 12 here. In chapter 11, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming from Egypt took away my land, 
from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? All that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you better than Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Eror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. We, we shift now from Jephthah's discussion with the elders of Gilead to his discussion with the king of the Ammonites. And the first half of this section in verses 15 through 22, Jephthah really is setting the record straight about what actually happened in the past. The, the king of Ammon has his facts twisted, more than likely on purpose, so that he can try to gain some more land. But given the benefit of the doubt, Jephthah patiently retells Israel's story of obtaining the land. And I, and I want to walk through this section here, cross-referencing the points of, that Jephthah refers to here, because I think it's really encouraging to look back and think through how God brought his people to where they were at this time and seeing the faithfulness of the Lord. Okay? So notice here in verses 15 and 16, as Jephthah begins to retell this story. In chapter 11, it says, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but they came up from Egypt. I'm sorry, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Okay, so I want you to see a couple passages here. Deuteronomy 2, verse, verse 9, and then also verse 19. If somebody can read that for us. I will not give you any of your land for a possession, because I have given 
search the territory of the people of Ammon. Do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Okay, so there's just, again, a retelling of what Jephthah is recounting here for the king of the Ammonites. And then look at verse 17 here in chapter 11. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Eden would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Okay? Now this is what we see in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21, this section here. If I can have somebody read that for us, and it carries on a couple slides, so I'll change for you when you get there. Okay, so let's look at verse 18 here in chapter 11. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Okay, so we have select verses here from Numbers 21 and also 22. So if somebody would volunteer to read these. Okay, so hopefully you can see how this is lining up as Jephthah's retelling the story, referring back to what God has done historically. Go ahead and read that as well, if you wouldn't mind, Dan. From there they set out and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, where the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Okay, and one more. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. Okay, so you can see as we're looking through this, and we're going to look through one more passage, but everything as, as Jephthah is referring back and as we look back historically at what happened, you can see how accurate this story is and how misunderstood the king of the Ammonites was. Okay, and then verses 19 through 22, let me just read that again, and we'll look at one more cross-section here for this historical part. Starting in verse 19 in chapter 11, Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought against Israel. 
And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Okay? So here's the retelling of this in Numbers 21, verses 21 through 26. If somebody could read that for us. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the well or the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from Arnon to the Jabbok as far uh, as far as to the uh, Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all the villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken, taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Okay, very good. Thanks, Dave. Okay, so after Jephthah finishes here this correct history lesson, he now draws out some implications from this, as we see here. First, what he does here is he reminds the king that it was the Lord, the God of Israel, who drove the Amorites and gave the land to his people, right? So that's the first thing you see there in verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And you can see there, especially in this passage, where Israel takes the land up to the border of the Ammonites. So they don't take the land of the people of Ammon. Okay, so he's correcting that for them. The land at that time did not belong either to Moab or to Ammon. So Jephthah seeks to reorient the king's thinking here to help him see that it was never his land to begin with. Second, he says this, let's let the Lord, the judge, decide between us to see who is right and who is wrong. The king of the Ammonites wants no part of that reasoning and refuses to listen to the facts. Okay, That's what he comes through after this nice history lesson. Thank you, Jephthah, for correcting my understanding of what really happened here. Nope, he doesn't want to listen to what Jephthah has just stated. Now, you know, as you read through a section like that and you think through, okay, this is just Jephthah retelling some history here, how can we learn from this? What can we glean you know, from a section like this? And you know, as I tried to think through how it was encouraging me in my study, I wanted to bring some of those things out, and perhaps you have other ways that it's encouraged you as well. But we ought to be encouraged to Jephthah's appeal to the truth when there seems to be confusion about the facts, that he turns to the reality of God's word and what God has done for his people in the midst of that, and how encouraged we ought to be that God has given us his word to settle our confusion, whatever that confusion may be. Typically, it's not historical confusion, maybe that we're wrestling with as much, but maybe just the reality of who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in him. Uh, we can know how God wants us to live, and we can know that we are doing what is pleasing in his sight because he has given us his word to understand these things. That was a point for personal application that I was just drawing out from my own heart 
was, man, thank God that we have an inspired word, that we're not left to ourselves to say, okay, is Jeff the right or is the king of the Ammonites right? Okay, which one is it? Do we have an objective truth by which we can appeal? And how that encouraged my heart is I think about how resetting my heart every day, I can go back to the word of God and know that I can do so in a way that is honoring to him. So that was something that jumped out to me that uh, was just uh, really encouraging for me. He, haven't, he hasn't left us groping in the dark to try to figure these things out, so we can be thankful that we have an objective word that we can go to in order to bring clarity out of, out of confusion. And then secondly, are we to just read history merely to gain facts about what happened in the past, right? You can just come to this and you can just be like, okay, I have a good historical count now, did my devotions for the day, let's move on, right? I mean, if you're reading through the Bible, it, you know, in a year or in two years, as some of us are trying to do. When you come to passages like this, what do you do with it, right? How, how do you think about that? Did God just want to correct your understanding? Certainly, he wants to correct us, our understanding through his word. But something that I was encouraged by was that history is meant to be a springboard from which we can meditate on God's faithfulness to us as his people. We ought to take time every so often to think back upon the years of God's faithfulness to us in our lives. Indeed, much of the Psalms are written from that perspective, looking back at what God has done, his faithfulness, which gives assurance of his present faithfulness and his future faithfulness. In fact, what was interesting about this was this portion of scripture that we've just looked at shows up in just this way in Psalm 136, verses 17 through 22, right? So you're thinking, all right, this is kind of a boring historical lesson here, right? But I want you to see how the Israelites looked at this, how they looked at their history. They used it as springboards for praise to God, okay? Psalm 136, verses 17 through 20. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, the king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever and gave their land as a heritage For his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. So here they go. They just take this piece of history and they use it as a springboard to praise God for his steadfast love that endures forever. So I think that's really helpful for us and applicable as we think about God's history and working with his people. Ultimately, all that history working up to the culmination of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you can see how the people of Israel would take this in their Psalms and they would reflect back on it. They wouldn't let it just become just dry history. Oh yeah, that's something that's good. And they would use it for a springboard for praise. So I think we can really, really learn from that. The Psalmist uses the history of God's faithfulness in dealing with his people as an opportunity to praise him for his steadfast love. And I think it's a good example that we should emulate in our lives. Okay? All right, any other points? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Remember that the Hebrew people not only saw saw Yahweh as his name, but they saw him as Lord, as a title. So they're they're in covenant with him. 
Yes. And he, 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 he pounds his covenant home all the way through the Old Testament. Yeah. You can see it in, in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Yeah. He's always reminding them he's, he's acting on their lives. Amen. So he, all this is a reminder of their covenantal relationship with God. Amen. And that should be a great encouragement for us as we think about his work. Amen. Okay, so hopefully that kind of will help you as you read through those passages. Use those. Chase down those cross-references. That's one of the things as I was working through this, I started chasing down cross-references. I was like, man, this is really good. This is goes from just like boring history to things that can enliven your spirit and be strengthened, strengthened by God. Okay, any other points before we move on here to uh, point three, Diana Lynn? Amen. Amen. Yeah. You know, and not allow anybody to take away what God has given. Right. Right. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Good stuff. Let's move on now to the last point on our outline here. And we see here the tragedy of salvation. And we see this in chapter 11, beginning at verse 29. And going through chapter 12, verse 7. And this last part is broken up into two parts. I don't have this on your outline, but you can jot this down if you want. Um, there's two parts to this tragedy. The first that we're going to see is Jephthah's tragic zeal, which begins in chapter 11, verse 29, and it goes through the end of the chapter. So let's go ahead and read that. Chapter 11, beginning at verse 29 reading through the remainder of chapter 11. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold... His daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. 
Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. What's interesting about this section is how little space is given to describe Jephthah leading Israel to victory over the Ammonites. Everything was leading up to that, and it seems to be almost a passing thought as you move into this section. The focus here is on this foolish vow that Jephthah makes and the horrific consequences of this vow. We may notice first from this text that is noted in verse 34 that this daughter of Jephthah is his only child. It really parallels what happens with Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And that is going to be important as we think through what exactly happened to Jephthah's daughter, which there has been no small discussion about. Probably in my study, this is where I spent the most time because there's been so much discussion about what actually happened here. But I believe that if we let the text speak for itself and we understand the context into which it falls, I believe that we come to the tragic conclusion That what Jephthah vowed in verse 31, that whatever comes out from his house to meet him, he will offer up as a burnt offering, is fulfilled in verses 39 and 40. That indeed she was offered up to death in accordance with her father's foolish vow. And one point that you see throughout this account that is very important is that through this, heaven is silent. We don't hear from the Lord at all during this this episode that we see. Now, here's where the controversy kind of comes in. Some have looked at this and have wanted to say that Jephthah's daughter was vowed to a life of service to the Lord, which is why she and her companions went and mourned for her virginity for two months. And I understand why people look at that passage and want to take it that way. That's the conclusion that you want to come to. You don't want to think that he actually offered her up as a burnt offering, but I have to be true to the text in my own study, and I admit that I may be wrong on this, but based on the context of the passage and the culture in which this takes place, it seems more natural to see this weeping taking place for this reason, because the daughter, remember, and here's the emphasis that you have in scripture, she's his only child beside her, he has neither son nor daughter. Why is that important? The daughter is leaving no offspring behind. And this is Jephthah's only child. In other words, the genealogy of Jephthah stops here with the death of his daughter. As we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, childbearing was a mark of great honor for a woman, and barrenness was a mark of shame. So the mourning here is because The girl is going to die childless. And with her death, the family line will end. You you notice here, it's interesting, Jephthah's response to this when his daughter comes out. It's very self-centered. 
right? He's not really thinking about, oh, my daughter. Notice, notice here what he says. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. Right? I mean, you could see the self-centeredness, self-centeredness of Jephthah. Right? It just speaks again to his, his character here. And as the story finishes up here, it really is a tragic story, which is why I believe at the end of this story, we see that it became a custom in Israel year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah for four days. Now, again, that's where I've landed throughout my study, so I have to be true to what I've looked at. If somebody came up with a more persuasive argument, which I've looked at, I would certainly concede to that. I'd want to think that perhaps Jephthah just devoted his daughter to a life of service to the Lord. That would be a better end to the story. Um, But based on the text, I think that is true. Nevertheless, I think the implications that we can draw out from this are helpful either way. I think all of us can testify that we have said things hastily in our lives without giving it the proper thought that we ought to. And I'm sure for all of us, we probably haven't had to face the tragic consequence of foolish words like Jephthah did. But it is a good reminder for us of the reality, as we see in Proverbs 18.21 here, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So our words not only greatly affect us, but also greatly affect those around us. Our mouths can be used mightily to advance the good, but they can just as easily be used mightily to destroy, as we see in this case with Jephthah. And so how that, as I was thinking through that and just thinking through, man, here, here's Jephthah and just, Lord, if you give me this victory, here's what I'll do, right? I think about, yeah, you know, like I've thought through that and said things like that. If only this, then this, Right? And so it really caused me to ponder uh, a passage that I hope just is on our hearts continuously as it was for the psalmist in Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Right? I recognize that my mouth can be used mightily for God, but it can also be used mightily for against God. And so I think that's a practical application that we can take from this section as tragic as it is. We can learn from it. We can understand these things here. Okay? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, you see another aspect of that, a foreshadowing, again, of the gospel in the sense of a life taken in order for Israel to be saved. And again, it's a pointer to the gospel. Again, as Dave mentioned, it it hasn't 
an anti-type to it, um, but it is a display nonetheless. Good, good point, Larry. Forrest? I was going to mention that uh, in the margin of my Bible, it mentions that this was a tradition of unbelieving generals to make a vow mm -hmm. that, that they could go ahead and make something. So really what Jephthah was guilty of was uh, fear of man rather than fear of God. Yeah, absolutely. The greatest learning from is that again it became another terrible tradition for the children of Israel to, to conclude from this well because of what happened we'll send our daughters out who are virgins rather than saying we shouldn't make foolish vows right. so they created a man-made tradition right. rather than uh, taking from this what God would really have taught them right. Right. so yeah. it was, it's the whole thing is tragedy on, it's like a Israeli soap opera. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's a good point. Absolutely. This is really important Okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'll go Diana Lennis or her hand next and then we'll sweep this way. So a lot of good a lot of good discussion. I have a question and sure. I might, I'm a little confused, so maybe you can uh me. <laughs> yeah. Um wasn't it a command I couldn't find it, but wasn't it a command of God that that the Israelites were not supposed to be like the people around yes. them and give up their children as right. a sacrifice generally as a thing. Yep. So I'm confused. Was that true? Yes, that was you true, that they, were, they, that they were not to do that. So why would he vow a vow that, to the Lord to do something that, that God wasn't honored with? Right, and that's, that's what I'm yeah, and that kind of goes back to what Dave mentioned earlier and what Forrest just mentioned. The question here is, is Jephthah truly a God-fearing man? Um, but you're exactly right. That was, yeah, do not be like the nations. Don't, don't do these, these things. So you're, you're exactly right. The confusion is there, rightly so, because why, why would you do this? And so the question speaks more to Jephthah's character and the decisions that, that he's making. But absolutely, that was... Foolish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Foolishness. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's no different than with Abraham. Right. No different than with Christ. So mm -hmm. there's, there, there, I mean, ultimately, we, we see the righteousness in the sacrifice. Yeah, there's certainly the sovereignty of God, but also the responsibility of man. So God permits a lot of wicked things to happen, but doesn't approve of the wicked things that he, so, he permits. So when God provides you with an answer to, your, your, to what you asked. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, if we have his word to God and direct us and we're praying for insight into a specific situation and it's going against his word, then we have his word to direct us to know that this, yeah, that, 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 that it isn't the path that we would, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, he could break the vow. If he broke it, it would be at the cost of his own life, which would have again shown a self-sacrificial spirit rather than sacrificing his daughter. So that's what some commentators have pointed to: that there was an out for Jephthah, but he wasn't willing to pay the price of his own life. Right. That's right. Okay. Working back over here. Yep. Dave. I think if you remember what's happening here at Convection. Yep. This is a spiraling down of Israel. Yes. Yep. And it's going to end in the, in the slicing apart of the concubine after a break. Right. This is just showing the fallenness of what's happening as they move away from the Absolutely. Yep. So you've got to keep that in mind. Definitely. And because God allows doesn't mean he ordains. Correct. Right. But he does use all things for his glory and That's right. his ordained will. That's right. Amen. Um, th this is a really important passage. Last time I was listening, listening to David with Lawrence Krauss, an atheist, and a couple other guys, and Krauss, in a very short period of time, had nothing to do with it. It was an intelligent design. But he jumped on the, the Bible. I can't believe you guys could believe all, uh, all these things that happened, that your God would allow that. But the fact is, God... God does allow man to basically go on his own right. and do things like this. Right. And again, it's not ordained, it's Correct. allowed. Right. So right. Your, your, your life and, and the walk with God yeah. from a human point of view and also from a godly point of view also has terrible things in it. Yeah, no doubt. And through this, though, God is doing something. Yes. Which people forget. Right, exactly. And if you, if you can't be oriented that way, yep. you never understand yep. why something like this is in the Bible. And I agree with you. Yep. I think this is what happened. Yeah. Because it's just a sign of the times of the going on. Yeah, the degradation of, of the people of Israel. Yep. Okay. okay. I just have a question. Yep. Um, back in 31, you know, it says, well, going back, you will then be able to tell you, and then whatever comes out of the doors of my house, mm -hmm. it was always going to be a human. It, well, it, it seems that way, and the reason for that is because when it says, then whatever comes up my house from the doors of my house to meet me, and if you may have a footnote there that actually the Hebrew there reads him, so it seems to be referring to a person that would be coming out. So he may have been thinking, yeah, absolutely, and again, it just, it, yeah, 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 it speaks again to the character of Jephthah. More than anything. So, okay, good, good discussion. We do have one more point here, and it's 10.15, so I just have to move through this last section. Um, the second part of this tragedy that we see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, is that of pride. Okay, so you have tragic zeal of Jephthah in chapter 11, 29, through the remainder of the chapter, and then chapter 12, 1 through 7, you have the tragedy of pride. So let me read through that section real quickly. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, 
Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city in Gilead. As we saw back in the beginning of chapter 8, after Gideon defeated Midian, the men of Ephraim rose up against Gideon, condemning him for failing to call them into the battle that was just won by Israel. And rather than rejoicing in the Lord's triumph over the Midianites, they were really fired up that they didn't get to join in that victory parade. You may remember that that sequence there. And you almost have the exact same thing happening here in chapter 12. But as Dave mentioned, you see a progression that goes even further, or a degression that goes even further. What we see here, again, is Ephraim being this self-centered group caring only for their own glory and willing to go to extreme measures to let others in Israel know about it, as is the case here when they threaten to burn down Jephthah's house. But Jephthah, unlike Gilead, did not try to stroke Ephraim's ego. You may remember that the way that Gideon responded was very politely, oh, who am I before the Lord? Look, you're so mighty, and so on and so forth. Jephthah is not having any part of that. He's a skilled warrior, and he's ready to to go to battle. He confronts the men starkly, telling them, notice this here, that he did call them, and they didn't come. So again, he's correcting the facts. Jephthah then essentially says, do you want to threaten me? And that was a bad day for the Ephraimites. Their pride, as the scripture says, certainly went before their destruction. Now, this this story of salvation, of Jephthah's victory over the Ammonites, is totally overshadowed by first Jephthah's foolish vow and the subsequent death of his daughter, and then the Gileadite slaughter of the Ephraimites. You almost forget that Israel defeated the Ammonites in this section. Because everything else that goes wrong here, and Jephthah was used by God to, to bring salvation to Israel, but again... Much like the case with Gideon, it's overshadowed by greater tragedies going on within Israel. And and we see here, again, this perpetual disintegration of the people of the Lord. There still remains, after you get through this next cycle here, there still remains the need for a ruler to arise who can not only defeat the enemy of Israel on the outside, but the enemy on the inside as well. And that will come only through the one who would lay down his life in order to bring 
everlasting peace, our Lord Jesus Christ. As these many stories that we've read about up to this point regarding temporary salvation continue to be marred and overshadowed by other tragedies, this one story of God, this meta-narrative that God's bringing together from Genesis to Revelation, this one story that God is setting up of this coming of a ruler that will provide permanent salvation is for us as we go through each page of Scripture continuing to emerge. And our hope, as we read through a book like Judges, our hope should intensify as we read these stories that there is one who has come to do what all these other judges have failed to do, and that is to defeat the enemy of God and to bring peace for his people. And therein we rejoice. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for this history that we can look back on father and be encouraged by and also be warned by and be saddened by but father we thank you how we have the whole counsel of God given to us in your word and we know where this is leading and therefore we are hopeful because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has conquered we know that all these things are types and shadows leading up to the ruler who would come and the ruler who reigns now and is still subduing his enemies and will one day bring all this to its proper consummation. We thank you for that. Thank you that we are in him and that the victory has been won for us by him. We ask that you would strengthen us as we think upon these passages, Father, that you would use it to further conform us into the image of your Son and that you would bless us now as we go to hear your word proclaimed again. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.